Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top it reached heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offering, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and bring your, you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely is Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil over the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to this father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tent. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. All right, y'all grab a seat. Thank you. We are in this series on the life of Jacob that we've called Relentless Grace. And if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you may be wondering, like, when's the grace show up? Like, I've watched Jacob, and this guy's kind of a mess, and honestly, Jacob's kind of one of the most relatable guys to modern people that there could be. We all relate to him one way or another. He's got a messy family life. He's full of doubts. He's got all kinds of struggles. He's grabbing hold of happiness everywhere he can and every way that he can try to find to take hold of blessing rather than leaning on God to provide it. He's a guy who struggles with life and ways that I think we all struggle with life, and what we're going to see today is that um, Jacob is going to finally, in this, uh, this, this text, meet God. God's going to break into Jacob's life in a unique way. And Jacob wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for Jacob. And this is going to be good news for people like you and me that are a lot like Jacob. And what we're going to see is that we cannot grab hold of the blessing on our own, but we ultimately need a blessing to come by grace. That God gives us a gift of grace, and that's an incredible blessing to us. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in here. Father, I just ask, as a broken man like Jacob, that you would meet each man and each woman in this room, all those that are watching, 
that you'd meet them where they are today. That they might learn to trust your grace in a whole new way. They might experientially know you in a whole new way. Father, pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're in chapter 28, but let me just kind of remind you, and if you're new here, let me kind of catch you up on the story of where we've been. Back in uh, Genesis 25, 27, we see Jacob. There is this oracle that was given to Jacob's mom, and Jacob's a twin brother. He's got a brother named Esau, and they were in the womb, and and God gave her this oracle that said the younger is going to serve the older. I said that wrong. Uh, the older is going to serve the younger. And it flipped it around. And so Jacob is the younger. He's going to ultimately come out on top, but he didn't trust the Lord. He grabbed for that birthright and tricked his brother into giving it to him. And he grabbed for the blessing in chapter 27 and tricked his dad into giving it to him. And so you've got this kind of difficult situation where Jacob with his mother, Rebecca, is kind of a mama's boy. And she's kind of coached him into how to deceive his elderly father and tricking Isaac into giving him the blessing that, was, that, that Isaac wanted to give to Esau. And so this family's just rife with tension, right? Uh, Jacob was, I mean, Esau wasn't very happy about the fact that his younger brother took his blessing from him and tricked his dad into this. And so you get to the end of chapter 27, it says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed Jacob. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. My dad's about to die. And when he does, then I will kill my brother Jacob. The family is not in a good place. There's some tension that's going on here as a result of that verse and kind of what was going on in chapter 28. Uh, the story begins to unfold and kind of what you see is uh, that, that um, Isaac and Rebecca come together and they're gonna send Jacob away saying, dude, you need to get out of town for a little while. Like it's not safe. Your brother wants, to, wants your head on a platter. And so we're going to send you out to your relatives far away. And as they go away, uh, we want you to go and find a wife of our people. And so sends them away to a foreign land. And, and so Rebecca is the only one that we know for sure truly loves Jacob. And she's sending her, her son, her favorite son away. And Jacob's leaving home. And uh, he, what we know from later in the story is that Jacob will actually never see his mother again. And she thought she was sending him away for just a little while, which means a few days. And it's going to be over 20 years. And he's on this journey. He's leaving. He leaves without a penny to his name, unable to enjoy the benefits of the birthright and the blessing, which should have come with all the family possessions and all the family heritage and all the spiritual meaning of the family. He should have been the one to carry it forward. But because of the way this whole thing went down, because of the deceitfulness in his own heart and the way he executed this, he's now sent away. He's, he's got nothing. And he's left home probably for the first time. And we pick up the story. Jacob's on the road. He's traveling in search of a future bride, but he's homeless, he's jobless, and he has no possessions. Uh, it's not going to be a very impressive suitor. Ladies, I don't know what you're looking for, but I'm guessing you want him to at least have a job. And Jacob's got nothing as he goes. And on top of that, he's going on a journey solo. And in that world, it was incredibly dangerous to travel by yourself and chance to get jumped and don't even know if he's going to make it. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 10. And in this story, Jacob left Beersheba. He's going off to Iran. So he's not even in a place yet. He's just kind of on the way somewhere. But you notice what happens in verse 11. It says, he came to a certain place. He stayed there that night because the sun had set and took one of the stones, put it under his head, lay down as a place to sleep. It's interesting, the word place 
shows up six times in these verses. And it's, what it means is, and we know that this place did actually have a name, that there was a, a, a community there called Luz that was nearby, but, but the author's trying to get us to see something, that Jacob's in no place important. It just says he came to a certain place, meaning th- this place has no meaning for him. There's nothing significant about it. And uh, Jacob's in the middle of nowhere and in no place important at all. Secondly, you notice that uh, the, the, the story, the way it begins, these details are all packed with meaning. So Jacob's in the middle of nowhere, uh, but then it says he took a stone for a pillow. Friends, when do you sleep with a stone as your pillow? When you got nothing else. Like that's all he got. And he maybe, maybe he took his cloak and put it over it to sort of soften it all, but it's like, well, I don't want to get a crick in my neck, so he lays his head on a pillow, uh, on a stone, uh, because he has nothing to his name. He's got nothing else. And then it says, it's night and the sun had set. Well, that's kind of redundant. And then if it's night, it's obvious the sun is set. What's the author trying to get you to see? He's trying to say that it's not just physical darkness that's happened, but there's, a, there's an emotional darkness that's fallen on Jacob as well. It's true literally, but it's also true figuratively. Friends, have you ever experienced a place like this? Maybe you're in a life transition going from one place to another. Maybe you've, you've completely blown it and you've failed in some miserable way. You've committed some wrong or heinous sin and it's kind of blown your life up. And then, or maybe your family's just going through some kind of crazy division and some kind of heaviness. And then you finally get off to a place where you've you're got a little bit of quiet, a little bit of alone time, and all of a sudden, man, the darkness just starts to settle on you as you begin to process all the things that happen. That's what I think Jacob's doing, is this is a guy who's alone. He's in a hard place, physically, but also just situationally. He's also, and the, and the darkness is falling upon him. Um, a lonely, hard, dark place. And what happens? He lies down to sleep, and it's then when God, by his grace, brings, begins to bring some hope. Verse 12, 15 tells us that Jacob has a dream. In his dream, it's sometimes what we call Jacob's ladder. Uh, it's really, uh, honestly, I think it's a really bad translation. One, you notice in the, the way it talks about it, there's a ladder. It says there's angels ascending and descending. Well, a ladder's like a narrow thing. It's hard to picture multiple parties going up and down a ladder, right? So I, I don't think ladder's the better way. I'm going to go instead with a word that, my, the, that the great biblical scholars Robert Plant and Jimmy Page came up with which is this is a stairway to heaven. This is a ladder or a stairway that goes all the way to heaven. It goes from the ground all the way up into the heavens. And as the great Led Zeppelin song says, uh, becomes the other title than Jacob's Ladder it becomes known for is a stairway to heaven. Uh, the other reason why Jacob's Ladder is a bad name is Jacob has nothing to do with this. Jacob didn't construct this path to heaven. This is something that God is revealing to him. God's the one who bridges heaven and earth with his flight of stairs. And it's actually hard to see in the English, but in the original, there's a couple other details that are important. Do you see the word behold that shows up multiple times here? Um, man, behold's just such an archaic and clunky term, right? Like when do we ever go behold in, in, in our current lifestyle whatsoever? It's not a word we use, and yet that word gets used over and over, and it's really more like a gasp. It's like, <gasps> is the way you're supposed to feel about that. But the way the, the story, the writer tells the story, it goes from seven words to six words to four words. So it's speeding up the way he's even crafting the sentences. So he goes with this big one. It's like, oh, there's a stairway all the way up to heaven. Then he's like, oh, angels are going up and down. And he's like, oh, God is there. 
And and so you're meant to kind of get this picking up of the pace and this intensity and this focus and everything is supposed to tell you that God is the central point or the highlight or the focus of this entire dream. And so there's some discussion uh, as to whether God was at the top of the staircase or whether whether God was at the top of Jacob on the stairway. Uh, We don't really know, but the point works either way, to be honest. If he's at the top, one of the things we know is angels are those who are sent by God to communicate, to care, to guard, and to protect his creation. And so angels are ascending and descending as a picture of those who have been sent by God from heaven to earth to take care of them. And so God possibly is at the top of the staircase uh, ordering the angels and, and guiding everything as this sovereign being in heaven. But the other side is he may be down at the bottom of the staircase sitting right by Jacob, right above his head, because he's close and he sees what's happening in Jacob's life and he's there to care and he, he cares for this one man named Jacob. It's an interesting text, an interesting thing to see, but what, uh, do you see how this entire dream's about Jacob's access to God? See, God is both transcendent, he's in the heavens, and he's imminent. He's close and he cares for the, your personal needs. And all of heaven, all the angels that are going up and down, all of heaven and, and God himself are focused on caring for Jacob and watching over him. It's an amazing picture that Jacob is given from the Lord. In verse 13, we see that God also speaks in the dream and he gives promises to Jacob. These, these promises take the form of a covenant promise. And in, uh, in, in the Bible, we have these covenant promises and it's a God's one-way covenant. And God's gonna say, I'm going to make this happen and I promise you these things are going to occur in your life. God identifies himself as the God of your father, Abraham. Now, back in 27, who was Jacob's physical father? Y'all talk to me. Who was Jacob's physical father? Isaac. Why does God say your father Abraham? Well, because he's talking about the spiritual heritage that he's been given in the covenant promises. God first gave these promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. Uh, God gave these promises of, uh, of a future promised land, of a future of descendants that are gonna carry on, and then a future that is going to bless all the nations of the earth. We know that eventually is gonna come through the person Jesus Christ. God repeats those same covenant promises to Isaac in Genesis 22. Now we get to Genesis 28, and God's giving those promises a third time to Jacob. And so it's gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and God is continuing to oversee these promises in the world. Now, here's what I want to think about. Why did God break in and give these promises to Jacob right now? Think about the timeliness of how this would feel and just the emotional state and the situation that Jacob would find himself in. I remember Jacob's homeless, jobless, um, away from home and everything he's ever known for the first time. He has no possessions to his name and he's on a journey to go try to find a bride and everything feels uncertain. Everything feels anxious. Everything feels like it's just up for grabs. It feels like, man, I failed and uh, everything I tried to do was futile and it didn't work. And now I'm just been sent away by myself and God breaks in and says, Jacob, you're literally leaving the land Like he was in the land and he's been sent away. So he's just left the land. He's like crossing over into a foreign land. And God says, Jacob, I promise you that land is going to belong to you. The land you're literally leaving, I'm gonna give it to you. Jacob's going, looking for a bride. And what's God promising? He says, you're gonna have many descendants, as many descendants as there is dust on the earth. Now, I don't know know, if you guys know how things work, but for a guy looking for a bride, that seems promising. 
You know, if you're gonna have a bunch of kids, it means something else is gonna have to happen along the way. So for Jacob, he's like, that's good news. And then he promises blessing. Jacob, uh, everything we've seen in his life to this point was grabbing hold of the birthright and trying to steal the blessing from his brother. He wanted a blessing and he had a verbal commitment of a blessing from his earthly father. But then it seemed to not matter. The blessing was supposed to come with all of his dad's possessions, but he's just left home. He didn't have any of those possessions with him. That blessing was supposed to come with the family name that he carries out into the world. And he's no longer even with his family. He's left. He was supposed to be the one that takes over and leads the family into the future. But he's been sent away as an outcast and a failure. And what's God say? You are going to be a blessing. And through you, you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you imagine how timely this was for Jacob? All the anxiety, all the vulnerability, that, uh, that lonely hard, dark place he found himself in. And God, in his kindness, meets Jacob in this moment. And do you see the mercy of God and how he works to care for this man named Jacob? And Jacob was in no place special with a head, head on a pillow, or a head on a stone for a pillow. Darkness had fallen on him and God in his mercy and gentleness came alongside him and just said, let me just breathe some encouragement to you. Let me just give you some life. It's interesting because Jacob to this point had been nothing but a trickster and a deceiver. And yet God in his grace is going to speak goodness over him. Verse 15, notice what God says, that even as Jacob's leaving in fear and failure, God says, behold, Jacob, I'm with you. I will keep you and I will bring you home. I'm with you. That's an astounding thing. That should be a shocking moment for us. Like the creator, God of the universe, this one who's holy and righteous, who's over all things, says, I'm gonna be with the Jacobs of this world. I'm gonna be with the rebellious, failing people who make mistakes and deceive their family and do all these things. And even though they, they are sinful people, what we see is God loves Jacobs. He loves people like Jacob. And so in this brokenness, this broken mess of a man, God says, I'm going to be with you. But that's not all. God's promises or presence means his security. He says, I'll go with you wherever you go and I'll keep watch over you and I will bring you back to this land. Friends, question for you. What is Jacob doing when God reveals all this to him? Is Jacob uh, seeking and praying hard after God in fervent prayer? Was, was Jacob in the temple offering sacrifices and religious service? Was Jacob out serving the poor and pouring himself out for other people? Was Jacob caring for uh, his own heart and trying to build up his own character and, and, and his own morality? Was he pouring himself over some religious book trying to find the steps that will tell him what a, what a righteous life looks like? Dude, Jacob's just sleeping. Like that, that's, that's all that Jacob's doing. Wouldn't it be great if, like if I was filming this, Jacob would be snoring right? And Jacob's just laying there. He's like, you know, he's like sawing logs, maybe a little drool coming out. He's just, he's doing nothing when God's grace breaks in. If you ask Jacob, you're like, Jacob, what did you do when you finally got to meet God? He's like, I don't know. I just like, I just laid there, you know, like that. That's what he brought to the table. Friends, do you see how important this is for us? Jacob, to this point in Genesis, we've seen nothing admirable about him. Not his, not his character, not his, his morality, not his spirituality. Jacob's on the run. He's unsuspecting. He's fast asleep. He wasn't praying. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't crying out for help. In fact, Jacob just came from dressing himself up to pretend to be something he wasn't. And here, God in his mercy breaks in. 
And the gate of heaven opens to reveal God's grace to him. Friends, do you see how God's grace is all of God? It's a relentless, free grace. God says, I will, notice the number of times it says, I will in this passage. He says, I will give you the land. I will give you descendants. I will make a blessing to you all. I will be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you home. And I will keep my promises. Friends, when we say grace, that's what we mean. When you see God say, I will do it, that's grace. Because we can't do it for ourselves. When we grab and reach and clutch for blessing on our own, it always ends in failure. When we learn to lean on the Lord, things are different. God's promises, it's interesting, run from west to east, north to south. God's promises start with the immediate, I'm with you, but they go to a future forever. And you will be a blessing to all generations. God's saying, I got this. Everywhere you go and whatever time you're in, God's broken into Jacob's life and he says, wherever you go, my grace is sure to follow. Friends, you need to know that truth too. Do you ever find it hard to believe that God's with you in the midst of the things that you're going? This is the ultimate display of what grace looks like. It's entirely unsought. It's entirely unsuspected. It's entirely unearned. And yet, while Jacob was a broken, rebellious, sinful person, the gates of heaven opened up and revealed to him the presence of God in his life. It's all grace. Verse 16 to 22, we see Jacob responds in faith. And uh, Jacob woke up from his sleep, and I think he didn't just wake up physically, he woke up spiritually too. Uh, but he, uh, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. I, and I did not know it. There, there's this kind of juxtaposition that takes place. And what Jacob's saying is, I never imagined that God himself could come to an ordinary place like this, that an ordinary place could become a holy place, but God's presence is undeniable. Surely, God himself is in this place. He's going to go, and it's awesome. But it's interesting what he says first. He goes, surely God was in this place. He goes, and I did not even know it. Friends, you realize that God is always doing 10,000 things when you may see one or two of them, or maybe none at all, like Jacob. Um, Do you know that God is present in your lonely, hard, dark places? That when you think God is distant and he's far away and he's nowhere to be found, that you could say with Jacob, surely God's in this place. And I didn't know it. He's there. It's interesting because it's not enough to know about God, is it? We have to know God experientially. You have to come to have a relationship with the Lord that's somehow real to you. See, Jacob had heard about God. Who's Jacob's granddaddy? Abraham, we sing Father Abraham and many sons. Like we know all the songs, we talk about Abraham all the time. We, we hear all the things about Abraham. His, his literal granddaddy was Father Abraham. He knew all about God. He'd heard about the promises that God had given Abraham. He'd heard about the promises that God had given his dad, Isaac. He'd heard about the oracle that God gave his mom that the younger or the older will serve the younger when he was in the womb. He had done religious activity and been around tons of God talk and God's stuff but he didn't know the Lord. He didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Now he knows the Lord in a whole new way. Look at verse 17. He was afraid and said, how awesome is the place, this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He feels, he's just overwhelmed with a sense of awe. This happens so often when people are in the presence of God in any form whatsoever that there's a sense of intense terror that's wed to the sense of incredible hope. 
And at the same time, those feel opposite to us. But whenever people are in the presence of God, they're terrified by his holiness and saying, I, don't, I can't stand. In fact, you see in the scripture, it says, God says, if you even look at me and see my glory, be, you won't survive it. So there's this sense of fear, this awe, combined with a sense of incredible hope. But if I'm in God's presence and he's with me and for me and will keep me and watch over me, then what, who could stand against me? So they're filled with incredible hope at the same time. And this experience shakes Jacob up as he witnesses the majesty and mystery of God. For him, you notice what he calls it? He calls it the gate of heaven. It's an interesting title because we see that title elsewhere in the book of Genesis. Actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, there's this other tower called the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel was a man-made tower that people were afraid that they were going to be insignificant. They were afraid that they weren't going to be secure. They said, uh, let us build a tower that goes all the way to heaven so that we, so we can make a name for ourselves, so that we can be significant, and so that the Lord can't just disperse us amongst all the earth, so that we may, we may have security. So they're looking for significance and security, and they say, we're going to build a tower that goes all the way to heaven, and what God, what's God do to that tower? He's like, not the way this works. And he goes down and scatters the people and breaks up the tower and sends them out on their own. That tower, Babel, is a reference to a word that means the gate of heaven. What's happening here is God saying, that is not the gate, that is not the way to heaven. That's not the way to be connected to me. Instead, it's a a stairway that I will build. And this will be all of God. And so God is um, rebuking that and saying, let me show you a better way. Saying it comes through God's intervention and his work. Friends, if, if you've never been shocked like Jacob by God's grace to you, if you've never had that moment of just being like, oh, I don't know how I can stand in the presence of God, and yet here I am by his grace, you don't experientially know God as fully as I think he wants you to know him. I think this text invites us in to learn experientially how to trust the Lord in a different way. But friends, you need to know God loves Jacob and people like him. That's the that's message we need to hear. God loves people who don't have it all together. God loves people whose families are messes. God loves people who sometimes deceive people. And some people sometimes dress up to be something they're not. And God loves people that are grasping for happiness in all kinds of ways that don't actually bring about the blessings that they're looking for. And God loves you like he loves Jacob. Now it's interesting because Jacob, as he begins to encounter God, responds to God with faith. And as we see this, his perspective's completely changed. He worships, he commits himself, uh, he makes vows to God and just says, God, if, if you will be with me as my God, like if you'll accept me to be with you, then I'm gonna give my life to you. I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna walk with you. And he's shocked, he's saying, I'm so shocked by your presence and your grace, but you'll have, if you'll have me as a sinner, as your worshiper, then my life will belong to you. There's an interesting subtext, I think, that happens here. Um, Jacob also promises to like, give money back to God of what he has. What does Jacob have right now? He's got nothing. He's jobless, he's penniless, he's got nothing at all. And he's like, hey God, I'll give you some stuff. But like, if you give me what, if you give, if you meet my needs, if you just, if you do what you promised you do, if you go with me and you keep me and you provide for me, like, I'm going to give back to you. And it's, it's not a great promise, to be honest. Like, it's kind of a weak vow. 
Jacob's like, you're going to save my whole life. I'm going to give you a little bit. I'm going to give you like a penance with it. Like, it's not a great vow, but here's the thing that I think is important. Jacob's starting to get it. It's starting to turn. Jacob, what have we seen in Jacob to this point? His whole life has been about grabbing, tricking, grasping, trying to get the birthright, trying to get the blessing, trying to get all the stuff and, and do all this. And now all of a sudden this guy who's been grabbing is saying, I want to give something. And you see that this shift begins to take place in his heart of what's happening. Um, friends, when you encounter the real God, it always rearranges your priorities. And you see that begin to happen in Jacob's life. Now we're going to see something else unfold about the spiritual life that, that happens as Jacob's story unfolds. Uh, this encounter with God is going to change his life, but it's not going to make everything perfect. It doesn't mean he's not going to have any trials. It doesn't mean he's not going to have any future conflicts. It doesn't mean he's not going to have any more struggles. It doesn't mean uh, that what we're going to see with Jacob is that old habits die hard. That the lies that he's believed and the mindset that he's, he's fostered for all these years is going to take some time to unwind and begin to learn another way. But at the end of his life, Jacob's going to become one who gives blessing away. It's just that road of transformation is going to take a longer time to be unpacked. And Jacob's going to need to remember the promises of God along the way, which is why in verse 18 it says, so early in the morning, can I just make a comment on early in the morning? Um, friends, don't wait. Like if God breaks in and breathes life and grace to you, don't wait. Respond immediately. Early in the morning, Jacob got up and he took the stone that had been under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. Jacob does an interesting thing, which seems kind of strange to us, but what we see is this hard stone pillow becomes a holy pillar pointed at heaven because he wants to remember where he met the Lord. And so that moment, he takes this stone, he turns it up vertical, uh, which is kind of an unnatural position for a rock so that if you're walking by, you just kind of catch your eye and go, why is that rock upright in an awkward way? And he puts oil over it to say, this is a holy place. It's a way of anointing it and setting it apart. It becomes something that Israel does later on. And so he's anointing it with oil and he names the place in a way that he would always remember its importance in his life. This stone was not important. This place was not important, except that he met God there. He names it Bethel, which is the house of God. And he says that this ordinary place has become a holy place. This ordinary stone has become a a hallowed pillar and this ordinary man is now a hopeful pilgrim on a journey learning to walk with God and his life begins to shift Jacob marks the spot so that he'll always remember his encounter with the Lord friends it's important sometimes to mark spiritual moments do you have places like this in your life where you can look back and say man there was a time when I just felt vulnerable where I felt like everything was up in grabs where I felt like man this is a lonely hard darkness that's fallen on me and God met me there and, and we need those places and we need to remember it and Jacob's going to need to as he walks through the rest of his life be able to point back and say God promised he'd be with me God promised he'd keep me God promised he'd take me home and as he walked through the trials of the future he would need to cling to those promises and setting up a place and naming it sometimes just helps sink it in for us and helps us remember it in an important way. And Jacob needed to be a reminder of, a, of this reality. Do you ever have this experience where you get busy in life and you're doing these things and you only see the trial or the challenge that's like right in front of you and you, you, you forget the journey that you've been on and you forget that God's had you for a long time and you forget that God's promises are there and all you see is the conflict 
or the bill that you can't pay or the report that came from the doctor or the thing that, that you can't control and it just feels like everything begins to unravel in your life. There's, you know, it's why we sometimes when you lose your way, it's like you wish you had a drone to fly up so you could kind of see the big picture. I wish I could see around the corner. I wish I could see where that road went. I wish I knew. It's why we use GPSs. It's because it's like, man, I get lost in the middle of the city, but I want someone somewhere to have a map that says, you know how to get me from here to there. And what God's saying to Jacob in his dream is, I've got you. And I know where you're going and I will go with you and I will keep you and I will get you to the final place. I will take you home. And it's good news for him. And Jacob marks this moment because he needs to remember what God says. I see you. I'm with you. I will keep you. I will bless you. I will keep all my promises and I will bring you home one day. Friends, that's good news. We have those promises too. Um, Do you have those, I asked you a minute ago, if you have those spiritual moments or those places in your life. I've got a hat here. This is actually one of my stones of remembrance. This is one of my places. It's a Boston Red Sox hat. Uh, I got to be honest, like Boston to me is no place. I don't care about Boston. I have no connection to Boston. I don't really even like baseball that much, to be honest. And so I'm not like a big Red Sox fan. That's not a thing for me. So this hat in some ways, it's just a hat. It's not that important. But um, every week when I get on, when I go home and I get on my Peloton, I put this hat on and I ride my bike, and this hat's become incredibly important to me. And it's, there's a reason why. And honestly, I think if I lost this hat, like it would be pretty devastating for me because the hat has a lot of, carries a lot of meaning for me. Let me tell you a little bit of the story. The reason I wear this hat um, is because about 15 years ago, we were on a family vacation, kind of our first family vacation. We lived in North Carolina. We'd flown all the way out to California. Uh, we were 3,000 miles from home. We were going to Legoland, SeaWorld, all the things. And uh, our first morning, we, we landed the plane that night, kind of got all settled, went in and um, went to the hotel room that next morning, and we wanted to hear the ocean. So we opened up the, the window and kind of slid the window open. And as we're running around and playing, we're getting ready for the day, one of my boys, Mike, decided to run over and jump up on the windowsill. And as he jumped on the windowsill, he went straight through the screen and fell about 25 feet down onto a concrete slab below us. And as we ran over to look out the window, I just remember looking down and seeing an arm going sideways and a pool of blood under his head and his little crumpled body down there and thinking, life's over. Like life as we know, it's not coming back. And just thinking that this is going to change everything. And so we managed to get him, tried to work on him. Uh, the other two boys are trying to come down. So Mike's five, um, his twin brother's five, Jake is two years old, and we're in this complete turmoil. And as uh, we kind of try to get him, and he sort of comes back to consciousness, and the ambulance gets there, put Nan on the ambulance and send her to, to Children's Hospital and get the boys together, and we get in to uh, the car and begin to drive and Jake's like daddy did Mike break his arm I'm like yes he certainly did that not sure what else but his brother Luke his twin brother says daddy I wish I'd have fallen out the window instead of Mike and I remember just thinking to myself is it better for me to call Nan and have her tell me that he's not made it or to wait and let her tell me in person because I didn't think that there's any way he was coming back from this and we get to the hospital and find out that he has lived and he's got major head trauma, he's got broken bones, he's got a liver that's lacerated in two places, one of them within a millimeter of the main artery that runs through that part of his body and 
that actually is the most dangerous parts, the internal bleeding that's going on and the risk that that might tear any further. And they say, you know, if that tears anymore, he's not going to make it. And so we're pins and needles watching that. Um, remember, we had a friend that came down from L.A. We had a friend, one of the, like, two people we knew in California at the time. Uh, drove down from L.A. and just said, do you need anything? And I was like, well, I need a hat. If I'm going to be at the hospital, we end up in ICU for nine days. It's like, I need a hat because nurses and doctors are going to be coming in all day long and I just need a hat to throw on when they're coming in and out. And she's like, what kind of hat do you want? I was like, I could not possibly care less. Just bring me a hat. So this is the hat. And we were in ICU for nine days. When we left, the doctor said, you need to understand you have a very lucky son. You know, this is all I do for a living. You have a very lucky son. And he wanted me to understand that he shouldn't be here. We ended up going back to a hotel room. We lived with three little boys in a hotel room for uh, a couple months. And as we did, um, the reason we had to stay there was they wouldn't clear him to fly home because the turbulence on a plane, if the seatbelt touched his belly, might open that liver wound up and he would bleed out within minutes and not make it. So we had to sit by his side for those two months and make sure that his brothers didn't run up and hug him or a football didn't hit him in the belly. He didn't fall out of bed or trip down the stairs. And so we just were holding on all the way through, trying to make sure that he's okay. Now, here's the thing. As a family, as a pastor's family who's used to caring for everyone else, the tables got turned on us. We all of a sudden realized how totally dependent we are on everything. We were totally dependent upon God for every breath. Now, we had a small group from a church that, in San Diego that heard about it through a prayer, uh, prayer chain that reached out to us and said, hey, we want to take care of you. And they would bring us groceries twice a week and they'd grab our laundry. I remember Nan just going, I just gave all our clothes to a stranger. Hope they come back, you know. Uh, like we're in this place of total dependence, relying on God to do everything. Every meal was provided for. We get an email saying a meal's coming from this family and we thank God and say, God, thank you for giving us this meal through so-and-so tonight. And we learned to trust. Every morning, Nan would wake up with the boys and she'd say, all right, we have another day to figure out what to do. Let's ask God to give us a gift today. And the boys would go, mommy, God gave us a whale today. Mommy, God gave us a turtle today. Mommy, God gave us these shells today. And they began to look for how God was just giving us things throughout the course of that time. And we just learned to walk in dependence in a whole new way. But here's what we knew. God was with us. God was keeping us. God was going to lead us home. I love this picture because it just was a constant reminder as every night we'd watch the sun go down that God's over all. And we would trust him and we would walk with him. And, and Friends, do you know God experientially? Not just the words a preacher said about God, not just words you've read or heard on a podcast, but do you know God? Because he wants to meet you and all the places of your life, the mountaintop experiences, but also the lonely, hard, dark places that you may not realize he's there, but he's there. Let me give you one last gospel connection for us because you may not have a dream like Jacob, but do you realize that you actually have more, something even more clear than what he had? We have Jesus. Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, um, more of a story than I can tell today, but John one fifty one, Jesus is actually gonna refer back to Jacob in this whole scene. In 151, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven, the gates of heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Um, this is a direct reference back to the dream that Jacob, had been given, that Jacob was given. 
in Jacob's dream, there was a stairway and God sat at the top and on that stairway, the angels were ascending and descending. And what Jesus is saying is that, that I tell you the truth, you're gonna see the gates of heaven open to you and the angels are gonna be ascending and descending on what? On me, Jesus says. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the stairway. I'm the one. Like, I, all you have to know is trust me. And if you have a relationship with me and if you have faith in me, you trust me. I'm the stairway that gives you access to God. I'm the stairway that gives you the presence of God. I'm the stairway that gives you the promises of God that you can trust. Friends, you understand that our religion is not about you climbing the steps of morality or you climbing the steps of religious performance or you doing all the right things. But our, our faith is about Christ who came and did everything for us by his grace that we might have access to God, that we might experience the presence of God, that we might know the promises of God for us in all of life. I need, you need to hear him say to you, I'm with you, I will keep you, and I will bring you home. And that's good news for you and for me. Let me end with this. What we see in this passage is that in the ordinary place can be a holy place where the gate of God can open up for you. A green chair on Sunday morning, a cup of coffee around your kitchen table, walking to your next appointment. Any ordinary place can become a holy place. Or any ordinary moment can be a sacred moment where you experientially know the presence of God. And any ordinary situation can be a spiritual opportunity for you to cling to the promises of God. Friends, sometimes God meets us in lonely, hard, dark places. But wherever we go, he says, I go with you. I will keep you. I will bring you home. And I will make sure all my promises come true. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe your mercy and your grace for us. That through Christ, we have your presence. That through Christ, we have your promises. Help us to cling to him in all of life. I pray it in his name. Amen.